Hello, my name is Paul Matthew Carr, and I'd like to tell you a story. Hello everyone and welcome to this thing that I do. It's called the Elkcast and I'm Paul Matthew Carr, also known as Daddy Elk to my internet friends. And I like to make things up and write them down. Usually this is a visual experience, but every so often I treat the world to an audio version for your listening pleasure. And that is what you're hearing right now. This is a storytelling podcast where stories are told and episodes are released at a frankly ridiculous interval. Seriously, it's disgraceful the amount of time between shows and if I were you, I wouldn't stand for it. I would write a letter voicing my displeasure and demanding more content be released with some semblance of normality. You can send that letter to elkcast at daddyelk.com and feel free to use expletives if necessary. Or if you're not the complaining type, you can still send a message to contact the show with any thoughts, musings, or helpful advice if you're so inclined. See what I did there? I asked for feedback in a roundabout yet humorous manner. That's a skill you're not taught, people. It just comes naturally. Speaking of feedback... We got some. This mostly took the form of Facebook comments, or f-comments, as they're commonly known in the business. Wait, I'm being told something? Apparently no one calls them f-comments, and I have evidently made that word up. Regardless, I'm going to continue to use the word f-comments, because I like it. The ones I received were very nice and complimentary, and I'd like to thank everyone who took the time to say nice things and pressed the little like button. It's surprising how satisfying a little blue thumbs up is and the smile it produces when you see it. Very Pavlovian. But the one bit of feedback I would like to focus on came in the form of a letter. Not an email, not a tweet or a comment, a letter written in ink, on paper, in cursive. It came in a stamped envelope in the actual physical mail. I know, apparently that's still a thing. Who knew? This letter was from a family member, actually, so it had a bit of personal content, and I'm not going to read it verbatim, as I normally would, but instead just focus on a small bit in response to the last episode. As you recall, the previous episode was entitled All That Road Going, and was a recollection of youthful exuberance told in an homage to the Beats, specifically Jack Kerouac. The comment on that episode is as follows. I thought the whole story was poignant and sad. I don't like to think of you being so alone, lonely, even though I completely understand the need to be alone with yourself at various times in your life. You are both lucky and unlucky. Unlucky that you had to work so hard to find yourself, but lucky that you finally did. This comment is, first of all, incredibly sweet. It's humbling to know that there are people in this world who care about me enough that a simple story could cause them to worry. Not that I want them to worry, but it's humbling nonetheless. This brings up something that happens to me often, however. My style of writing, the tone that I use, the subject matter I choose to write about, tend to make people think that I'm not happy. This is understandable to a certain extent. I tend to write in the first person, which makes it more intimate, more confessional, even when I'm writing fiction. And when I'm writing about myself, I often do so with a twinge of melancholy. But understand, when I do this sort of thing, I'm writing a creative memoir. What do I mean when I say that? Well, while everything in the essay was true, those events did happen. Those feelings were actually felt. I'm just a bit creative in the telling of the tale. My language, my tone, the overall experience of the piece 
is something I mold and shape to create a particular mood and to produce a specific response in the reader. Or at least that's what I hope to do. That's the goal, anyway. Now, my writing, in general, tends to be over-sentimentalized, often emotional, bordering on flat-out maudlin. Hell, I was raised in an Irish Catholic household with cops and coal miners. Maudlin was a thing that seeped in through the walls and sat down on your couch and had a chat with you at night, usually over a glass of wine or a tumbler of whiskey. So I come to it honestly. In this particular piece, I was emulating the beats, so there was even more melancholy than usual. The beats had an exuberance, a celebration of life, but woven in between was a world-weary sadness that infused every word, permeated every moment. I was deliberately trying to invoke that feeling. So when I take my normal writing voice and put a beat sentimentality over top of it, what comes out can make you think that sadness was the only thing there was. This was intentional. I guess what I'm trying to say is that when you tell a story, maybe not everything is exactly as it seems. And it is the skill of the storyteller to be able to take you to a place that he wants you to experience, to emphasize a particular aspect or mood in order to make you think, to feel. I take it as a great compliment that I was able to do that with someone. And if I brought a tear to your eye, well, my work here is done. So thank you, everyone who commented, and in particular to Francis, who took the time to write and send that letter. So now let's move right along to today's story, which will be one of fantasy and magical places. And I'll tell you a little bit more about it right after this. Hi everyone, I'm Paul Matthew Carr, and I'd like to introduce you to a brand new podcast all about the craft and the process of writing. It's called Word After Word, and each month I'll be joined by Professor David Hicks to discuss the skills and methods needed to be a great writer. Using examples from novels, short stories and poetry, as well as TV and film, we'll dissect passages, beautiful scenes and characters, and investigate the process writers have employed in order to create their great work. Along the way, we'll be joined by special guests, best-selling authors, poets, as well as up-and-coming writers to get their advice and learn the habits that make them successful at what they do. So join us. Paul Matthew Carr and David Hicks for Word After Word, a podcast on writing. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. You can also find us online at wordafterwordpodcast.com. Fantasy, science fiction, ghost stories, imaginative pasts, speculative futures. It's what I love. It's what I read. It's what I watch. It's what I think about most of the time. So you'd think that's what I'd write about as well. But at first I didn't. When I started to write seriously... I wanted to be a serious writer. By that I mean, I thought I should write about serious subjects, about reality. Literary fiction was based in the real world, so a real writer should write about reality. Funny thing is, no matter how hard I tried, the fantastic kept creeping in. If I was writing about a narcissistic alcoholic dealing with failing health problems in an increasingly cruel and unforgiving world, suddenly there'd be a ghost in the basement. That was unexpected. If I was writing about a single mom trying to raise a child in a crime-ridden neighborhood while simultaneously running for city council, a spaceship would land in the backyard. How did that get there? I'm exaggerating, of course, but although my head told me to be in the real world, my heart was living in fantasy land. This should not have been surprising given my taste and predilections, but it was a long time before I just allowed myself to write about anything I wanted, to indulge whatever fanciful notion popped into my head and just follow that path. It's often said that a writer should write about what they know. True enough, I suppose, but a writer should also write about what makes them happy. Not necessarily a happy story, 
You need only read over my catalog and you'll rarely find a happy ending in the lot, but writing is an enjoyable experience, and one needs to embrace that joy. Many people give the impression that writing is a slog, a down and dirty trudge into the bowels of your soul, but in reality, it's fun. It allows you to think about things in different ways, to approach ideas from different perspectives, to go deep, to find out things about yourself you never knew that are surprising and sometimes aren't pleasant. But that act of discovery is always rewarding. And in the end, we wouldn't do this if we didn't enjoy ourselves. Writing is fun. And when I write fantasy, that's just a playground in the park where I get to ride the swings all day. So the story I'm going to read you today is one of the first pure fantasy stories I ever wrote. It actually started out as sort of a memoir, but in the writing process it evolved. Once I stopped holding back and just had fun, it changed into something different and unexpected. It's called The Faraway Lands. To my knowledge, there are three ways to get to the faraway lands. Each one has its benefits, each one its drawbacks. One is not better than the other, though if you decide to travel using these methods, you may find that you have a preference, or that your tastes may change depending on the day. In any case, you must be extremely diligent and watchful. Finding the path is not always easy. More often than not, a person passes right by it without ever noticing it's even there. In my time, I have been fortunate enough to travel often by all three methods. The first way to get to the faraway lands is to climb the world tree. The difficulty here is that the world tree grows randomly, sporadically, and it's very hard to know just where it will spring up. One must simply stumble upon it or have knowledge of where it once was and wait until it returns. Now I've heard that you can obtain seeds, plant them in the moonlight, causing a tree to grow by morning, but the deals you need to make and the persons with whom you need to make them are dubious at best. No, the best way is just to wait. Be patient. When the tree does grow, you must not hesitate. Jump into its branches and climb. The climb will not be easy. The tree grows in a vine-like manner, and twists and turns over itself in knots. The hand and footholds are at times large and easy to grab, but at other times it's thin and there is virtually nothing to hold on to. At certain times, a leap of faith is required to get to the next branch. There's no telling how high you'll need to climb, to the cloud cover at the very least, but often much, much further. It is, for obvious reasons, suggested that you do not look down. Vertigo is always a problem. Even with the most seasoned climber, the chance of falling is great. However, looking straight out across the horizon is particularly rewarding. Before venturing into a new world, it's useful to have a better perspective on your own. When you reach the top, sweaty and exhausted, the ground will feel shaky and unstable at first. Don't worry, you'll soon get your sky legs, and you'll be free to explore all the fascinating sights. The second way to reach the faraway lands is to be blown upon the mystic winds. This is by far the most dangerous method. First, you have to be in the right place at exactly the right time. Any deviation, an inch to the left or to the right, and the winds will simply blow you backwards and leave you in a lump, disheveled and just a bit broken. However, with the timing right, the winds will pick you up in a funnel, gently bouncing you to and fro, swirling and twisting you head over heel. The sound of rushing air whistling by will give you the impression of whispers or the soft exhale of breath by something larger and greater than yourself. The tumbling cyclone can last for minutes, sometimes hours. There's no way to tell how long the experience will last. At times it can go on for days, and you'll be left with the impression that it will go on and on without end. But be assured, it will end, and you will be deposited, gently, most of the time, down in the middle of you won't know where. For that is the wonderful and terrifying thing about the mystic winds. You can never know where you will end up. 
And if you choose this method, be aware, hold on to yourself as best you can, and just enjoy the ride. The third way to reach the faraway lands is by far the most common. It is to climb into a magical box. Magical boxes are incredibly easy to find. They're scattered everywhere, and mostly in plain sight. In fact, there's probably one in your home right now. The boxes disguise themselves as ordinary objects. On the street, they could be a phone booth or a police box. In a home, they could be hidden away as a wardrobe or a large wicker basket or a child's toy chest. Sometimes they can be disguised simply as a cardboard box. But be aware, not every box is a magical box. And more than once, a person has made the mistake of thinking they've found one and put it in a prominent place in their home and showing it off to visitors and family. And perhaps some entertainment can be gleaned from this, it's true. But a magical box must not simply be to entertain. It must be a doorway. There is a difference, and with time and with practice, you'll be able to learn the difference. How I came to find my way to the faraway lands happened one summer, when I and my friends Michael and Robert decided to explore the garage rooftops in my neighborhood. We grew up in Philadelphia, where the houses were built close together, and you could quite easily walk down entire streets jumping from rooftop to rooftop. This practice was frowned upon by the parents, of course, but for three young boys it made for a rather exciting afternoon. We ran and jumped through the summer heat, and we were having a good day until we reached the Sullivan garage. The Sullivans had a hole in their roof that was patched very crudely with a large square of particle board. This patch top was very easy, once you tried, to pry it off and gain entry. We lowered ourselves down into the dark garage, the only light coming from the hole above our heads. It smelled of mildew and mothballs. It felt forbidden. We imagined ourselves in a treasure vault, for that's what it seemed like. Inside was a trove of wonders, a punching bag suspended from the rafters, and there were old board games, and a pinball machine that didn't work, even after I wasted a quarter in it. There were several old dolls, the kind that had the eyes that closed when they tilted backwards. I found them frightening, though I didn't say it to the others. And there was a stack of National Geographic magazines that some, we soon found out, had pictures of women without their shirts. It was a little slice of heaven. It would have remained so if Robert had not found an old umbrella with a wide dome shape when open. He decided he would jump from the garage, claiming he was Penguin from Batman, and he broke his leg in two places. Worse than that, we were caught. And although I repeatedly tried to explain that it was Michael and Robert who had orchestrated everything, and that I was merely an unwilling bystander in their nefarious plans, I was grounded and placed in solitary confinement for an entire week. I also had to apologize to the Sullivans and help clean their garage. It was not a high point in my life. During my confinement, I was not to go outside or speak to another living soul, save for my mother, who simply shook her head and made tisk-tisk noises whenever I looked at her. I was also made to clean the basement, and it was there that I found my first magical box. It was tucked away in the corner behind some old clothes and rusty tools. I'd never noticed it before. Large and wooden and square. It was painted red, though faded and chipped. It had a hinged top, and when I opened it, I was amazed by what I saw inside. Now, you must understand that the faraway lands are not the same for everyone. What one finds there can be different for each individual. It's not simply one place, but a multitude of places all existing at once, in the same place, at the same time. It is the time you arrive and your own expectations that determine what you will find. When I arrived that first time, the sky was a burnt orange, and beneath it stood massive trees like giant oaks. Their trunks were bright white, and their leaves were a shimmering azure blue. Small oblong berries grew on them, pale white like shards of ice, and they tasted salty like the sea and sweet like cotton candy. 
and the ground was a green emerald grass that stretched off into the horizon in all directions. I stood staring into that distance, wondering what was beyond the end, just over the horizon edge, when two figures approached. Their names were Solomon and Max. Solomon was a prince and a dragon slayer. He was noble and brave and handsome beyond all explanation. He could win the heart of any maiden by simply a glance and a kiss on the hand. He was not, however, very bright. That's why he traveled with Max, a kindly old dwarf who taught Solomon how to speak properly to maidens and kept him from getting in too much trouble. We spent the day together, there under the burnt orange sky, till it darkened into a purple-gray. And when it was time to leave, I was overjoyed when the two travelers decided to come back with me. They stayed the entire week of my confinement, hiding under the bed or in a closet when my mother came to check on me or to tell me to keep the noise down. They told me tales of their adventures and taught me all the various ways of reaching the faraway lands, and I wrote down those stories. And when at last my sentence had ended, they came back from time to time and I would go with them through the magical box or the mystic winds or up the world tree. And over time I filled my notebooks with their stories and my sketch pads with their images. For many years I traveled, though as time passed the trips became less and less. Years passed, I grew older, and in time I forgot my friends in the faraway lands, and I forgot the ways to get there. The journals and sketchbooks were tucked away, unremembered. I suppose it would have stayed that way. Except for a few days ago. While checking on my daughter, I found her playing in her room. Her bedroom door opened ever so slightly. I peeked inside to find her staring into an empty box. The sound of muffled voices could be heard, and laughter, and the sound of stories waiting to be told. And I remembered. That night, I could hear the wind begin to blow, and there, in my garden, a vine-like tree began to grow, small and thin, just the width of a man's wrist. But it was sturdy, sturdy enough for two travelers to descend, waving to me from the branches. So that's it. Just a bit of fantasy. I guess more of a fairy tale, really. Either way, just a little bit of fun, and I hope you enjoyed it. So that brings a close to yet another episode, and it leaves me just to say, you've been listening to The Elkcast, a Daddy Elk production. All stories heard on this program are copyright Paul Matthew Carr, that's me. And all opinions heard here are mine as well. I stand by them, but they're probably not to be taken seriously. You can find the program on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, as well as online at daddyelk.com elkcast. Why not head over to one or all of those places and leave a comment? That'd be awesome if you did. You can also contact the show by email, elkcast at daddyelk.com, or on Twitter at daddyelk, or Facebook slash daddyelk. This program is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? <laughs> Come back next time, or I'll have another story for you, and another story behind the story. Thanks for listening, everybody.